0: You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Judges, we pick up at the end of chapter 8 tonight. This week we had a little confusion in the office about... The title I gave, particularly how to spell the word dessert, and it obviously it's not desert, and it's not the word dessert as in fruit, uh, as in fruit cobbler or uh, apple pie. It's the old word that means deserved. And I won't, I'm not talking about pumpkin pie tonight. I'm rather I'm talking about the biblical notion of you, you reap what you sow and those who get what they deserve. Last week, Pastor Light explored the uh, testimony of God through uh, Judges chapter 7 and 8, in which God used Gideon to bring down the mighty and the many by means of the weak and the few. And uh, tonight, we pick up after Gideon's death, and we see the tragedy of Israel falling into idolatry, and a gross atrocity as one of Gideon's own sons rises to power and seizes control uh, with great devastation. The book of Proverbs 28, verse 28 says that when the wicked rise to power, people go into hiding. But when the wicked perish, the righteous thrive. Well, as we pick up in this text tonight, as we look at the anti Judge Abimelech, we are reminded that God is just and is the justifier of all those who trust in him. Please follow now as I read, beginning in chapter 8, verse 33. And I'm not going to read all of chapter 9, but I'll direct you as to what verses we'll cover. Judges 8, verse 33. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal-berit, as their God, and did not remember the Lord their God, who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jerubbaal, that is, Gideon, for all the good things he had done for them. Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem, and said to them and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem. Which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up to the top of Mount Gerizim, and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, Be our king. But the olive tree answered, Should I give up my oil, by which both gods and men are honored, to hold sway over the trees? Next the trees said to the fig tree, Come and be our king. But the, king, but the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, Come and be our king. But the vine answered, Should I give up my wine which cheers both gods and men to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, Come and be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you, Come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now, if you have acted honorably and in good faith when you made Abimelech king, and if you have been fair to Jeroboam and his family, and if you have treated him as he deserves, and to think that my father fought for you, risked his life to rescue from the hands of Midian, But today you have revolted against my father's family, murdered his 70 sons on a single stone, and made Abimelech, the son of his slave girl, king over the citizens of Shechem, because he is your brother. If then you have acted honorably and in good faith towards Jeroboam and his family today, may Abimelech be your joy, and may you be his too. But if you have not let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, citizens of Shechem and Beth-Melo, and let fire come out from you, citizens of Shechem and Beth-Melo, and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer, And he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. After Abimelech had governed Israel three years, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem, who acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem, who had helped him murder his brothers. In opposition to him, the citizens of Shechem set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by. And this was reported to Abimelech. I pass over the next several paragraphs, which is the sequence of combat between Abimelech and the people of Shechem, and the sequence of God's judgments upon them that culminate as we pick up now in verse 50 of chapter 9. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes, and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower, to which all the men and women, all the people of the city fled. They locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and stormed it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me, so that they can't say a woman killed him. So a servant ran him through and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, They went home. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them. This is God's sobering but holy and righteous word. Let us pray. Father, this is sobering to see the evils of men in the past, of people following wickedness. And we pray that you might help us to see these things in light of your justice and your mercy upon your people. Open our eyes that so we may behold wonderful things in this portion of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. My family enjoys quite a bit, the uh, Disney film, The Lion King, which has been popular on Broadway as a Broadway musical in recent years, as well as on film. If you know the story, you'll know that King Mufasa, the Lion King, and his wife celebrate the birth of their first son, Simba, who becomes the heir to the throne of Pride Rock Lurking in the background is Mufasa's weaker brother, the sly Scar, a lion filled with self loathing, with an insatiable lust for power. Sulking in the background is Scar, who's sulking over his brother Mufasa's growing hold upon the throne. And so Scar schemes a devious plot by which he can bring down the, the downfall of his brother Mufasa and rid himself of this threat, this heir to the throne, Simba. Well, as he executes his devious plot, Scar takes the young and naive Simba and takes him into a deep canyon. And there he leaves him trapped, before an oncoming stampede of wildebeest that had been stirred up by Scar's hyena henchmen. Now, having manufactured a perfect crisis, Scar runs off to lure Mufasa to his doom as the courageous lion rushes into the stampede, saving his son's life at the cost of his own. There, with great Mufasa lying dead, With great devilish skill, Scar, the guilt-mongerer, convinces young Simba that his father's death is his own fault and sends him far away into exile. Well, Scar steps into the void of leadership and begins to lead Pride Rock with incompetent rule, in which deteriorating conditions leads to destitution. Meanwhile, with the help of his friends, Simba rises and returns to challenge Scar to his rightful place and the throne of Pride Rock. During the great battle, the truth is revealed about Scar's treachery, and then Scar falls victim to his defeated allies as the hyenas turn on him, vengefully consume him with poetic justice. Abimelech, like the wicked scar, is a worthless man, driven by ambition to his own and others' destruction. In the end, he gets his just deserts. Tyrants like him rise to power, equipped with cunning, and yet lacking in virtue. Now the world may look upon these stories and merely sigh, what goes around comes around. But this worldly wisdom, this worldly wise observation, only approximates the real truth. The fact is, God is completely sovereign. Over the wicked and the righteous. Fate does not drive the affairs of men. It is God who ultimately exalts the righteous and brings the downfall of the wicked for His own glory and according to His perfect will. The editor of the book of Judges summarizes the Abimelech account at the end of chapter eight, as we picked up in verse thirty three. Abimelech is first mentioned earlier in verse 31 as the son of a concubine of Gideon, distinguishing him from the other 70 brothers who were, who were apparently legitimate sons of Gideon's many wives. Now sadly, the Israelites, as soon as Gideon dies, will prostitute themselves to the Baals. In this, in this case, Baal-berit, which means covenant Baal. They have traded in their covenant God for deal-maker Baal. It would seem that following and trusting Almighty God is just too hard. Yahweh cannot be manipulated. So they trade in. They exchange in their desire for control, to be like the nations. They exchange the fountains of living water. For broken cisterns that can hold no water. 1 verse 34, the editor indicts the Israelites for their failure to remember the many rescues by which God delivered Israel from Egypt. The Canaanites and Midian. They suffer a kind of historical amnesia. Not that they've forgotten everything God has done, but they fail to act upon this sure knowledge by offering God their devoted trust. They break the greatest of commandments, which would call them to love the Lord their God. And they further break the second great commandment by neglecting to show kindness to God's representative, Gideon, who has so faithfully delivered them. A couple weeks ago at our reform conference, Dr. Nichols, pointed out to us that two of the most notorious sins committed in the Old Testament are idolatry and ingratitude. Both of these sins are very evident in our text before us. Theirs was an age of gross ingratitude. They lack any thanksgiving towards God in his great in power, his deliverance, and the faithful servant he had raised up to deliver them. The idolatry of self, self self-gratification, entitlement, blinds us to our duties to God and to others. The Bible exhorts us in Psalm 100, Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Paul likewise tells the Thessalonian church, Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. A nation's idolatry and ingratitude leads them to a foolish choice of inadequate leadership. The same can be true for organizations. For churches, Israel's failure to worship God and to honor Gideon make them vulnerable to the tyranny of a worthless scoundrel of a man who commits treachery. So what motivates a person to commit treachery? Well, it would seem that in Abimelech's case, it's a lust for power, Perhaps he felt slighted. Maybe he was left out of enjoying the status his other brothers enjoyed because he was born of a slave woman, as Jotham will assert in verse 18. But the Bible gives no record of him being ill-treated. And even if he had been ill-treated, we know in the case of Joseph, who was grievously mistreated by his brothers, did not return evil for evil, but returned upon his brothers the grace that God had demonstrated for him. Abimelech is a graceless man, a man of great treachery, and one of the worst villains that we find in all of Scripture. Now, that's saying quite a lot, because we can think of Cain, we can think of Lamech, King Saul, Doeg, Ahab, Athaliah, Herod, and many others. What drives these ruthless tyrants? What motivates the great tyrants of our own age? Hitler, Stalin, Mao. Is it not the vain assumption that life would be better if they had the reins? Is it not the foolish ambition to recreate everything after one's own image? But before we would attack these demi-gods, we must check our own hearts. Because in them we find similar inklings. These are privileges that God alone enjoys. He alone is sovereign. God alone orchestrates everything according to his perfect will. Idolatry and ingratitude in human hard heart, human hardened hearts are set against the gracious and loving reign of Almighty God. Well, having seen what drives Abimelech, what about the men of Shechem? It would seem at first they are motivated by blood loyalty. Abimelech goes to his mother's brothers to curry favor with them. He reasons with them that it would be better that one man rule over them as opposed to 70. Now, there is no real evidence that Gideon's sons had any real official rule over Shechem. Gideon had rejected the offer of kingship. Perhaps they did have influence in terms of nobility and land ownership. And yet there is no evidence that there was any ill treatment or corruption. And so we're not totally clear on what motive, what motivated them to switch their loyalties and commit such gross atrocities against these innocent men. But these men choose to campaign to win over the people of Shechem, under the slogan that Abimelech is our brother. But when we come to verse 4, I believe we uncover the motivation of these men. Notice that in verse 4 they take 70 shekels of silver out of the temple of Baal Barit, for which Abimelech can hire reckless men to follow him. These idolaters express here their loyalty to a pagan god, whose altar had been destroyed, defiled by Gideon. Perhaps this is an act of vengeance. This is an act of expressing loyalty to Baal. They find a pretext for their crime by slaughtering the faithful worshipers of Yahweh. People sold out. To follow false gods can rationalize almost any evil. Jezebel hires scoundrels who will accuse Naboth so her husband Ahab can swipe his vineyard. The Sanhedrin will have men falsely accuse the Lord Jesus Christ in an effort to indict him. And likewise, Abimelech gathers to himself these reckless adventurers It always seems there's plenty of worthless men willing to commit evil in order to fill their stomachs. Proverbs 1 warns young men with the Father's words, My son, if sinners entice you, do not give in to them. My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths, for their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed blood. And so Abimelech with his followers proceed to murder all 70 of his brothers, minus the youngest, Jotham, who manages to escape. Cutting them down execution style on one stone, like cutting the heads off of chickens. Israel knew a sad history of such mass killings. Pharaoh will order all baby boys thrown into the Nile for fear that they would rise up and rebel against him. Athaliah, the queen mother of Ahaziah, will order the killings of her own grandchildren that she might seize the throne in Jerusalem and usurp the worship of Yahweh for the worship of Baal. And then, of course, Herod will order the slaughter of little boys in Bethlehem for fear of the promised Jewish Messiah. There is no shortage of wicked men, driven by ego, by the promises of false gods. And yet God will bring everyone to account on his day of judgment. And so as followers of Christ, we pledge our loyalty to the one true God and join arms with believers to defend the weak, the innocent, against the forces of tyranny, wherever it is in our power to do so. Our commitment as the people of God trumps all other bonds, family, race, nationality, political party. We're called to stand by our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, before Jotham escapes from the threat of Abimelech, he offers, makes one attempt at offering a prophetic oracle of doom. It's during the coronation of Abimelech that Jotham will climb to the top of Mount Gerizim, the same mountain from which Joshua and the people Israel will pronounce the blessings of God. But it's here that Jotham pronounces curse in the form of a a parable. In the parable, a story of trees... Trees that need a king. And so they approach the olive tree, the fig tree, and a vine. And all three of these noble trees decline the offer of king because it would mean sacrificing their vocation of providing the blessings of oil, fruit, and wine. And so, in desperation, the trees approach the thorn bush to offer it the position of king. The thorn bush gladly accepts and arrogantly demands that the trees take refuge in his shade. Now some scholars have noted, and I tend to agree with them, that Jotham here is not necessarily giving an anti-monarchy speech. Rather, he is attacking and criticizing the citizens of Shechem, like the foolish trees who have anointed a worthless, useless thorn bush as their ruler, so the men of Shechem anoint a rogue male over them. Abimelech can no more lead these people. than a thorn bush can provide shade for a towering cedar. The problem here is not kingship, but it's the character of this rotten man. Brambles make good fuel, but poor kings. They burn better than they rain. And sadly, people tend to accept bramble leadership rather than oaks of righteousness. Jotham the poet will turn into Jotham the prosecuting attorney as he indicts the men of Shechem for their crimes. He reminds them of his father's heroic deeds for their benefit and charges them with revolution, murder, and treachery. Jotham's charges will echo down through the ages as the apostles will impugn the leadership of the Jews guilty of Jesus' blood. The Shechemites anticipate the crowds who demand the release of Barabbas instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. They crucified the King of Glory and took a scoundrel in his place. When a final oracle of doom, Jotham pronounces fire to come out of Abimelech to consume the people of Shechem, and for fire to come out of Shechem to consume Abimelech. Much later, Jesus would warn that those who rejected him and his messianic ministry would suffer a great devastation, prophesying that not one stone of the temple would remain as he would return in judgment with the Roman armies to bring the downfall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. God is just, and those who reject him receive their just deserts. On well, the remainder of our passage tonight, we see this sequence of God's judgment upon this wicked man and these wicked people. Abimelech will enjoy a three-year rule. But then God sends an evil spirit to create hostility between Abimelech and the people of Shechem. The worst judgments of God in the Bible occur when he removes his protective care of grace and when he allows people to harden themselves against one another, as in the case of Pharaoh in Egypt. But in our case, as we see with him sending the evil spirit, we know that King Saul was tormented by an evil spirit. Ahab will be tempted to go to death in battle by yet a different evil spirit. Fueled by hostility, the men of Shechem hire men to ambush travelers along the road. This is perhaps intended to give Abimelech, Abimelech a political black eye for his failure to preserve law and order. Discontent. The people of Shechem rally to a new man named Gale, rhymes with Baal, who, in a drunken rant, slams the current administration. He is heard by Zebul, the governor of the town, who advises Abimelech to attack the city. And so the next day, big mouth Gale meets defeat on the battlefield, battlefield and is cast out of the city. Shechem will suffer the vengeance of Abimelech's bruised ego. He and his men will destroy the city. The people will take refuge in a tower, a kind of stronghold. But this tower becomes their tomb as Abimelech and his men set it on fire. And yet, Abimelech, his fury, still unquenched like a raging forest fire, goes to another town many miles away to destroy it. Perhaps we think that this town was a sympathizer to Gale, perhaps providing him safe haven. But Abimelech this time, pompous and overconfident, approaches the new stronghold, and receives a rude awakening, a little bump on the noggin, as a woman drops a millstone on the top of his head. And as he dies, he cries out like King Saul for his servant to spare him disgrace by running him through with the sword. Proverbs 11.10 says that when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, who murdered his 70 brothers. He got his just desserts with a millstone on top. God made the men of Shechem pay for their wickedness. A sad tale of poetic justice. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the tragic Greek story Oedipus. Oedipus was the son of Laius and Jocasta, the king and queen of Thebes. In response to a prophecy that declares that Oedipus would kill his own father and murder or marry his own mother, Laius, the father, binds the feet of young Oedipus and leaves him out in the countryside to die. But as fate would have it, A herdsman picks him up and takes him away to be raised securely away from Thebes. Oedipus grows up ignorant of the fact that he's adopted. He hears of his prophecy and for fear of actually killing his own father, he runs away from his adopted parents. Meanwhile, a sphinx attacks the city of Thebes and threatens death on all travelers who fail to solve its riddle. King Laos of Thebes goes off to seeking a solution to this riddle. As the prophecy and fate would have it, Oedipus and Laius cross paths. They fall into a scuffle, and Oedipus kills his own father in self-defense. Oedipus will go on to defeat the Sphinx, solving his riddle, that famous riddle about the creature that walks on four feet in the morning, Two feet in the afternoon and three feet in the evening, the answer being man, as a baby, as an adult, and in his elderly years. In gratitude, the people of Thebes award Oedipus with the throne and the hand of the widowed queen, Jocasta. Because of their sin, a plague falls upon Thebes. When he learns the truth, Oedipus blinds himself. Jocasta takes her own life. Even Oedipus' sons will kill one another. This tragic story of poetic justice, steeped in the Greek pagan worldview of futility, tries to grapple with issues of justice and fate and human will. But such is the case when people worship false gods. All that is left is despair, a falling into desperate immorality and acts of brutality. Friends, we live in a post 911 world, a world in which events like the shootings at Fort Hood a few weeks ago occur with rapid fire. People today cry out for justice. Or perhaps express exasperated sighs of confusion. We have a justice system that cannot resolve these terrible events. We have a government that cannot protect us or prevent such attacks. And so we live in a day and age of great fear and anxiety. And yet we also live in a day and age of great blindness where people fail to see the darkness of the human heart and how you and I are allied with the wicked. Our refuge is not in the fatalism of the Greeks. Our only hope is in Christ, who is both just and the justifier. Where the world offers us phonies, we have a true leader, In King Jesus. Where the world fails to offer lasting and satisfying justice. We believe that the Lord Jesus will return. To judge the quick and the dead. To vindicate the righteous. And to expel the wicked from our presence forever. Where the world offers us consolation with no more sentimentality than a hallmark card. With pop psychology to mask the guilt of our sin. Jesus is a savior who died to consume our just deserts. You see, because of our sin, we belong in the same camp as Abimelech and the men of Shechem. We, like the first century Jews, are the traitors who called out for the release of Barabbas. In rejection of the Lord Jesus, Christ died for rebels, scoundrels who need deliverance from the sickness of sin. You and I don't deserve grace any more than any of these other evildoers. For it's not by good behavior that we are warranted entrance into glory, but by the righteousness of Of Christ, who suffered in our place and consumed the wrath of God for our salvation. Friends, let us be thankful that we do live in a society governed by the rule of law. And may we be wise to preserve justice, to do our part to elect God-fearing leaders. May we stand with believers against the railings of persecution at home and abroad, that may we express more thanksgiving, that we have a true king, one who will judge the wicked, who will vindicate the righteous of all those who trust in him. Show him gratitude, that we will not get our just deserts. As Dr. Rogers so wonderfully expressed this morning, hell and eternal punishment is what we deserve and what the Lord Jesus so graciously and powerfully has satisfied for us, that we might enjoy the favor and the salvation of God. Praise him who did not spare his only son, but offered him up in our place a sacrifice for our sins, and who through the blood of the covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. Let us pray. Father, we do give you praise. We give you thanksgiving. We thank you that you are the just judge. You are the righteous one and you will vindicate your people who trust in your name. We ask, O Lord, that you might teach us to turn away from idolatry, to repent of our ingratitude, to worship you in spirit and in truth, and to show you glad Thanksgiving, to live out our days in joy and faithful service. We pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.